Thank you, and welcome to uh, another afternoon session at the North Cornwall Book Festival. Um, as Patrick said, my name is Tiffany, and I'm not going to bash my mic like that again with my hand. And this is Lenny, Lenny Goodings, who um, I had certainly heard of in the 2000s. Uh, and if it wasn't for Lenny and Virago in the 80s, I wouldn't have read Zora Neale Hurston, um, Bessie Head, Maya Angelou, those big writers that... I suppose an, an English girl in the middle of nowhere in England rather than Britain wouldn't have had access to. Um, so Lenny is here today to talk about this fantastic book, A Bite of the Apple, and the subtitle is A Life with Books, Writers and Virago. So it's part memoir, yes. Uh, it's certainly a history of the publishing house Virago through all its forms and all its achievements and all its battles. Um, but it's also the story of Lenny's relationship as a publicist and an editor with these big writers that we all know now. But at the time, you know, they, they were found or they were brought over here or they were discovered by Virago. People like, as I said before, M Maya Angelou, Angela Carter, um, Margaret Atwood, um, Sarah Waters, you know, these big, now big, big uh, writers. So, if you'd like to welcome Lenny again, I know you've done it once, but you must <laughs> do it again. Thank you. <laughs> so, Lenny, would you like to begin with a small reading from the very yeah. preface? Okay. First of all, just thanks for coming. <laughs> I'm going to tell you, I said to Tiffany B, on the other side of uh, the book, as it were, it's really um, exposing. So I'm <laughs> grateful that you're, there are enough people here, is what I'm just saying. So thank you for coming. So I've called the first chapter, um, the, it's the preface I'm going to read from. <clears throat> Soho, London, early evening, late 1970s. Just a minute. <coughs> and the sounds of Friday night revelries rise up on our window on the fourth floor in Wardour Street, where I'm still working my way through, oh my God, no. <coughs> obviously nerves. <laughs> We've both been drinking a lot of water this afternoon. It was the Cornish pastry. <coughs> <Yeah. coughs> I'm working my way through piles of paperwork in the Virago office. I am not alone. We do everything in this, ourselves in this company, including the dusting and vacuuming of our one large room and small kitchen bathroom. And it's Carmen Khalil's turn to clean. If it's your week, you could come in on a Saturday or stay late after work on a Friday. Carmen is vigorously polishing one of our three telephones. I'm just 25, Canadian, new to Britain, and in awe of this formidable woman. But as there are only two of us in the office, I feel emboldened to ask, why did you start Virago? She looks up and without missing a beat replies, to change the world, darling, that's why. I know I'm in the right place. I'm a fervent believer that books can affect, even change lives. It was a memoir about bookselling that part me, partly drew me to Britain to begin with, 84 Charing Cross Road by Helen Hanf. Funny, sharp correspondence between a girl from the New World and an older gentleman in a London bookshop. It had been one of my favorites as a young woman. Before I arrived in London in 1977, 
I felt I already knew the redoubtable foils in the famous street of secondhand bookshops, which threaded its way from Oxford Street to Trafalgar Square. I longed for a relationship with London and its booksellers and publishers. Clutching a temporary working visa, shrugging off the new to me idea that I was a slightly inferior character from the colonies, who, <laughs> as the immigration paperwork had it, understandably wants to visit the mother country, <laughs> I packed my bags. I was not long out of university, had traveled to the west coast of Canada, where I'd worked in a bookshop, and back to my home near Niagara Falls. Now at last I would go to London. I bought a round trip air ticket and told myself and my family I would stay for one year, try anything, everything, then head home, probably to Toronto to get a proper job. Over four decades later, still in London, married to an extraordinary man who's lived the Virago story with me and now with two grown children, I write this book about Virago, the feminist press. A Bite of the Apple is part memoir, part history of Virago, and part thoughts on more than 40 years of feminist publishing. I consider myself very lucky and privileged to be part of Virago. I've tried to be straight and not shy from awkward and painful times, as well as to tell of the truly great ones. At times, the conflicting demands of the press have nearly capsized our ship, but to stretch that metaphor just a bit further, the Viragos, by whom I mean authors, founders, staff, and our readers, were always going to rock the boat. We always meant to disrupt, to make a difference. What I love about publishing is that no matter how sophisticated, how technological, how digital our industry becomes, one fact, fact remains. Publishing still comes down to one person telling another, you must read this book. Publishing is driven by that passion, conviction, and excitement. I've come to see that the connecting thread of this book is tension. Tension, though uncomfortable at times, is not necessarily bad. It makes creative sparks, and evening maddening constraints can be productive. Virago lives within the tension between idealism and pragmatism, between sisterhood and celebrity, between art and commerce, between independence and being owned, between behaving independently but for over 25 years being part of a conglomerate, between watching feminism wax and wane and then become popular again, while at the same time knowing so many of the battles are still to be won, between being modest and yet aware of one's power, between trying to do good in the world and sometimes failing. Tension does seem to be an integral part of change. There's no doubt that I too have my own tensions. I have made foes as well as friends, mistakes as well as good choices. I've taken unpopular decisions. I also have power, at sometimes more than at others, in this career of mine, and it's not without challenge to try and handle that intelligently and generously. But it's important that women have power. Women's former lack of the power to decide what was published is at the very heart of Virago, our raison d'etre. I also find somewhat to my surprise that on the other side of this daring to record these times and thoughts is the deep pleasure of share, shaping a story, giving an experience, a narrative. I've learned I love to tell stories. Marilyn Robinson says, writing takes you inward, seeing what your mind contains. And I discover that she's right. This is my memories of those decades. Virago has been a life changer for me, but certainly not only for me. Thank <laughs> you.
So, to change the world, darling, how, mm. how, <laughs> how did the to change the world, darling, begin at the very beginning in, in Soho in the late 70s? Well, it's, it's so interesting when we now know. Well, first of all, there's always been a lot of people, a lot of women, rather, in publishing. But the women didn't take the decision about what was being published. And it was an actually almost radical it was a radical thing to have women setting up their own publishing house and making their decisions about what would be published. Publishing has always been filled with really intelligent women, but they often, in those days, were working for intelligent men, but mm -hmm. they weren't making the decisions. And the other thing that was happening at the time that Virago was first coming, first came out, which is 1973, we're going to be 50 next year, for God's sake, <laughs> um, was... It, I was thinking back now when I'm watching Ian McEwan publish his new novel. And Ian McEwan is making all sorts of references to when he first started publishing. And I thought, oh, yeah, that's right. That's exactly what it was like. Nothing against Ian McEwan. But the sort of, the, the landscape was Ian McEwan, Martin Amos, Salman Rushdie, Ishiguro later. And their references were John Updike, um, Saul Bellow, um, Philip Roth. Um, and that was the co that was the conversation of what, you know, what was what were literary events basically, and Virago came into that. Not just Virago; there were other, you know, the Women's Press. Later, there was Pandora, Sheba, all sorts of things, um, disrupted that, you know. But of course, we weren't the only disruptors. The, the women's liberation movement was the largest disruptor, wasn't it? And so Virago sort of rode out across on that wave. Same time, Spare Ribs started that, you know. <coughs> Spare Rib started in 72, Ms. Magazine in America was 72 too. And so there was this wave of, wave of women's liberation, but also a wave wanting women to get their voices onto the page. And if you think, I mean, I was quite struck by this. I hadn't really thought about it until I started writing that actually a lot of feminism came from books. Mm. You know, Betty Friedan, Simone de Beauvoir to start off with. And they, you know, books are, as A.L. Kennedy, who I quote in, in things, she's, the, because you read a book intimately, it, you know, she talks about the brain being the sort of most intimate organ. And you read by yourself, don't you? And you, you absorb this. And the, these books, which were passed to each other, uh, Marilyn French is the women's room, etc. You know, they were the sort of, f as much as the fervent of changes, things like Equal Pay Act and... Um, abortion rights, etc. You know, it's kind of, it does, an awful lot came down to books at the beginning. And did it, did it begin with, I mean, everybody in this room will know the Virago modern classics. You're bound to have them on your shelves, the green and those beautiful paintings on the front. Did it, did it start with rediscovering some of those writers and bringing them, in some cases, certainly back from the dead? Yes, definitely back from the bed, dead. Um, I mean, Rosamund Lehman, who we didn't, who was alive, but she said, I am resurrected. <laughs> um, the Virago Modern Classics started in 1978, so not that much different from when Virago first started. So the original things that Virago started with were reprints, because one of the, the things, one of the things that Virago's always doing is holding up a mirror to the world and saying, you know, a combination of pushing things, but also reflecting things. And one of the things that was happening was that women really wanted to know their history, women's history, ordinary women's history had not been sort of on the page in the same way. I mean, things like um, um, the w making of the English working class, which suddenly said, let's look at the ordinary people. You know, that, those, those kind of ideas were around putting ordinaries, 
ordinary lives on the page, putting women's experience, saying they were worthy of books. Mm -hmm. You know, that was that was all the the, the uh, sort of thinking. So originally, we did a lot of reprints of class of non-fiction classics that the Fabian Women's Society and people like that and uh, cooperative working cooperative women's working guild did. Then Carmen Khalil, who set, who set up Virago, had this idea of starting up something that would rival Penguin classics. And at that time, a lot of the, I mean, even things like collections of anthologies of um, poetry, etc., people just didn't even notice that women were not included. It's, it just seems so staggering now, actually, when we're so alive to that. But at those, in those days, you could publish, I do remember, John Silken published a book of, of poetry, and there were about two women in it, and it was an anthology like this. Um, so Carmen had this idea of, char of challenging the sort of, or at least comic, um, copying the, uh, the Penguin modern classics. And so as a result of that, all these women writers, as you say, who had been forgotten, I mean, men writers get forgotten too, I'm not saying they don't, but we were establishing something different. And so even though each one of those books is not necessarily radical or anything, and some, you know, some of them are fairly middle-brow, whatever, the, the idea of showing a trajectory, of showing a tradition of women's literature, that was the radical thing. And so, and the thing that was really nice about it too is that Antonia White was, one, was the first one, Frosty May. She was still alive when we published her. And as I said, Rosamund Lehman was Molly Keane. Mm -hmm. And so a lot of those writers told us about other writers. And then it became a sort of, you know, booksellers would write in, um, other, you know, readers would write in, say, can I have that book that I loved as a, a child? Um, I Capture the Castle, Dodie Smith, for example, had been out of print for a long time, now back in print, not with us anymore, sadly. <laughs> <laughs> but we, we showed them that there was yes. a market for that. Um, and then the Americans, some people like Willa Cather, Edith Wharton, you know, they, Kay Boyle, those women, it does seem staggering now because everybody knows them and they're studied, but they, in this country, they had disappeared. Mm. So Sarah Waters has a very nice phrase, which is like, at, at each book is a conversation with another, each novel is a conversation with another novel. You're, you're conscious of where it's come from, or each writer stands on the shoulder of another writer. And I think that's what the Virago Modern Classics did, you know, and still does. And what was so interesting about that is because you know, I think of them a bit like the Trojan horse, because they could go places where other people said, oh, we're not having feminists here, mm. you know, but we'll take the classics. You know, <laughs> I remember we, I, took, I went with one of our sales reps once to um, Belfast, and we were trying to, so you go out with your reps, and he was trying to sell them Maya Angelou, actually, interesting enough. And, and the b bookseller said, there are no feminists in Belfast. <laughs> <laughs> we don't want that book. But we'll have the Virago Modern Classics. And, you know, even people who didn't subscribe to feminism or wanted to know about women's liberation or whatever, even they would have to know, these, this is, the intention is political here. Mm -hmm. It's telling you that women's literature matters, mm -hmm. women's lives matter, women's experiences matter. And these great writers have been forgotten. And the next generation of Virago writers were fed on yes. the Virago classics. Yes, because one of the things, and we did copy this from um, Penguin, is to get um, introducers. You know, so you had modern introducers. So Zadie Smith introduced Sora Neale Hurston, for example, referencing her earlier. Um, so as a way of, you know, of, bring, of bringing them up to date in a way too. Also, I was doing publicity in those days, and of course, 
you sort of, you need an author to come sit up on a platform and <laughs> have a little <laughs> chat. Um, and they were mostly dead, so that was, you know, it was good to have, it was good to have writers. The challenge. Uh, exactly. Um, and your work then as moving from publicist to editor as Virago morphed and changed and became bigger and then became smaller again mm. and then became bigger again. Um, you talk a lot in the book about your work um, as an editor and the delicacy of it, and the challenge of it, and the intimacy of it. Um, can you talk a little bit of that, about that in terms of specific writers that you've worked with? I, so I have a chapter in here called The Intimacy of Editing, um, because it, 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 it made me realize that actually, when you work very, very closely with, with an author, first of all, they will deliver you something that's not fully there, or maybe they feel it's fully there, but they want a, um, they want another opinion, as Patrick was saying earlier. Um, so it's a vulnerable state in a way, actually, because it's you know it's pre, lots of people. I mean, sometimes I read stuff where only the author, and maybe one other person, has read it so far. You know, so there's sort of there's anxiety about about the thing, about the piece. And then what I I think what I enjoy doing is trying to get inside the author's head so to think what what does this author what do they intend with this book what is their vision of this book and Linda Grant has this lovely um, phrase that I quote in there which is that at the beginning there's she says uh, before the book is sort of you know it's still not um, it's not concrete yet she said it's like a shimmering vision you know and you know you can see you have to be careful with that because if you go in with great big clawed hopping feet and say, ah, that doesn't work, whatever, you kill it. Mm. And that's what I meant about that sort of delicacy. It seems to me that there's a sort of moment where you have to be the cheerleader for that vision, even though you can see, haven't quite got there yet, or, but you can see where, where it could go. And so one of the things I always ask an author at the beginning is, what do you think the book's about? You know, because that's when you often find that the book is not, in, it's still in the author, more in the author's head. It hasn't quite got all to the page yet. Um, and you can help them. And I, so I do love that, actually. Um, so one of the, should I tell the Margaret Atwood? <laughs> so Margaret Atwood. Um, so Margaret Atwood has a lot of, it's like some of, some of, it's a lot of, some authors, if they're writing in English, will have more than one editor. So they'll have a, um, a UK editor, an American editor, and Atwood's case, she had a Canadian editor too. And she has this sort of idea, she had this idea that we're like a team, I think. And um, so she said, she could we all come to Toronto and read her manuscript? And so she said, and this was in the middle, Orcs and Crake. It was, the book was um, Mad Adam. It's a trilogy. And um, she'd already, she'd done the first two. So she sent us a little bit of it. And then I flew over with her um, agent from here. And we arrived in Toronto, freezing cold, even though I know that country. I hadn't taken the right clothes. <laughs> I remember that. Um, and we went into the hotel, and the, the agent had, this is not a usual thing, I'm going to tell you. The agent had four boxes for each one of us editors. And so we had an editor from America, paperback and hardback, blah, 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 so, and all English speaking. Not, we didn't have the translators there. And each box was sort of customized. So mine was green, and somebody else had a pink one, whatever, had a ribbon. And the whole manuscript was in it. 
And then there was a little goodie bag which had aspirins, um, <laughs> water, and throat lozenges, <laughs> and chocolate bar. And then they, they, um, her, her agent said, okay, go. And we ran back to our, each one of our, our, our rooms. Try and tried to read, had to, you know, kind of, you know, gulp this manuscript down. And that was very funny because, of course, you know, this was not the intimacy that I'm talking about, where it's just you and your author. This was now a little competitive, <laughs> you know, like, can I read as fast as that person? And, you know, am I going to be as clever as that person? All that kind of thing. Anyway, so we all read. And also, I was jet lagged. But anyway, I came back, we all came back and um, discussed the manuscript. Margaret wasn't there. Discussed the whole manuscript. And came up with some ideas, and it was, it was about title and characters, and there were certain places where we thought it dragged a bit, and all kinds of stuff. And we sort of agreed on what our message would be. And then the next day, Margaret came, all pink-cheeked from um, walking over in the snow. And her agent, her American agent, was, had a beautiful name, Phoebe Larmour. And Phoebe wore long sort of purple swathes of clothing. And she said, this is an auspicious thing. We've got to light a candle. So we lit a candle. <laughs> Yeah, exactly. And immediately the fire alarm went off, and, <laughs> and all these fire trucks arrived. You know, kind of. Anyway, that we settled down, and then Margaret just sat there and um, listened to us, and we each, we said what we thought, and she sort of took notes and made lots of the changes we suggested. But that is an unusual way of editing, I have to say. Um, mainly, it's sitting and bouncing back and forth and back and forth. I have one of my authors in the, in the, in the room, Susie Boyd, who we have a good, I hope she will agree, we have a nice time editing. <laughs> Please say yes. <laughs> um, but it is, I, I feel conscious that creativity is, it, as I said, it can be smashed. Mm. It can be, well, you'll know. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> you know, and when it's not quite ready, it's not quite hatched yet, and, but you sort of still need help. And you need someone to guide it, and so, or to at least have the conversation, and and different authors need different things at different points. I mean, some authors don't like to deliver anything until they're completely finished. Some authors like to deliver you a little bit as they're going along, um, and then someone like Marilyn Robinson, Marilyn Robinson does not edit. She, yeah. I didn't know that. No, I know. Amazing. I just discovered that too. Actually, I'm not her primary editor, her American or her primary editor. She writes, and then when she gets to a place where she can't write anymore, she just leaves it. And it, she leaves it for a month or something like that and goes back. And she, she says she hardly does any editing. She does hardly any revising. That's very unusual. Mm -hmm. Most people really mm -hmm. take apart a book and put it back <laughs> together, etc. That's, that's amazing. I know. I know. But to know... I mean, not, not just as a writer, but as a reader as well, to know, to get a, a peek behind the curtain of mm. these intimacies is just amazing in, in, in your book. It really is. Um, and not, not only the process... Oh, no, I want to just firstly go back. There was one point you talk about Linda Grant sending you a certain email. <laughs> <laughs> yes, it's true. Um, yeah, that was the first time I worked with Linda Grant. Um, I had slightly stalked her, to be honest, because I, I liked her writing very much, so I waited until um, she, she had, her agent had left, her editor left, so I said I was interested, but I hadn't worked with her. And that's the other thing, you know, I mean, Susie and I have worked together for quite a few books now, and that, that's nice, because you settle back into that, and you kind of, you know each other, push points, etc. Um, with Linda, I didn't know her very well, but I kept thinking, I think this could do another, another round or whatever, and um, 
So finally, I sent her the last email. I thought, it's perfect, except da da da. And she, she wrote back an email, enough, <laughs> you know, kind of with in caps on, on, a, on email. As you know, that's a shouting. <laughs> so I thought, OK, fine. But in, the, in her thank you, she did say, thank you for being um, persistent or so relentless. Relentless, <laughs> that's right. It wasn't as nice as persistent. But anyway, she, she came back for more, so I guess it was OK. That's a, as a writer, that sounds delightful to have that kind of energy and exchange. Well, because you see what you're doing. I mean, you're, you're absolutely right. No one except maybe your mother is going to read a book as many times as an editor yeah. does. You know? Yeah. you know, it's kind of so I will read. I will read a manuscript until it's ready. And if that means you've got to read it five times, then you do. Mm -hmm. And I think I know myself now having written the book to have somebody lavishing and <laughs> thinking that hard about you lavishing is the wrong word thinking that hard about your 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 book mm -hmm. thinking about each page each line it's structured da, da, da. you know it's very that's stimulating and you know it's gratifying mm -hmm. nobody else will probably ever read it <laughs> like in that with that kind of uh, dedication i think and one thing I don't i didn't look into at all who edited your book <laughs> I, d I don't know was it it, it was fine. Yeah, yeah, okay. <laughs> no, no, because oh, yeah. I did know. Because, of course, it's like, you know, I'm sure anybody's written something and then somebody else reads it and they think you've left a spelling mistake there and you think you've read that six times and how did you not see that spelling mistake? You mm. don't see your own stuff, do mm. you? Um, but I, what I did with this book is um, I gave it to all my editor friends. <laughs> I gave it to about three, a couple of people at work, a couple of people who had, who had retired. And I said, would you read it for me? And one of them came back and said, can I do track changes? And I said, OK, fine. You're, wow, you're really going to get in there. And he did. And um, so I gave it to about four or five people. And then I took whatever. I didn't agree with everything. But you know, you, could, you, you hear where the, where the mistakes are, where it's not clear enough, et cetera. And then I gave it to my editor. And she um, slightly suggested some structural stuff. So you know, that was uh, really helpful. Hmm. I was good on that. Where I was a little annoying, I'm sure, to, to the publishing house, was <laughs> I said, this is what I want to call it. This is what I'd like it to look like. Mm -hmm. I don't like that typeface. <laughs> I said, all that kind of stuff. I became, that's when my publishing side really came out. When they first gave me the proofs back, the point size was, the point size is the size of the type. I thought it was too small. Mm. So I said, could you please reset that? <laughs> kind of, anyway, there I was a bit more annoying, I, I'm sure, because you, it's nothing is worse than publishing a publisher. Well, do you know that? <laughs> it's not. It's not annoying. You know what you what what you're saying. And one thing I just wanted the the wonderful, uh, uh, being slightly geeky myself, is the notes in the back um, because uh, Lenny uh, quotes obviously um, a lot of writers either, either you know from written exchanges or from lectures. Um, so the the notes in the back are wonderfully. Exhaustive. They're just on the index. It's it's beautiful. I just wanted to talk about the beauty of your book <laughs> for a moment. Um, but I, I'm very interested in what I think of as the sort of the furniture of a book. Yeah. Um, you know, because because publishing is about, you know, it's telling you, isn't it, that you it's you have to quickly tell somebody, this is the title tells you, and indicating the look of the style of it tells you something. Um, the subtitle tells you something like that. But then when you get into it, you know, this is what I meant about the furniture, you know what I mean? What, is, what are the titles like? What are, you know, do you have running heads? Um, do you have enough space between the, the, the lines? Mm. The, it's called leading, 
because this comes from the old-fashioned typesetting thing where it was literally led between the, the, um, the, the letters. Um, and I think signposting, all those kinds of things, really, they make a book. And it, it's invisible by the end, but you know, they really do help you. You're creating an object, and that really matters, mm -hmm. I think. No, absolutely. Um, and, and yeah, and it's something that you know and that you have created, so I think it's a beautiful thing. I, I wanted to ask about, going back a little, about your work as uh, a publicist and with writers that we now know as these, these huge figures. Um, and you worked a lot with Maya Angelou. Mm. And what was, that at, what was that like at that time? It was extraordinary. It has to be said, it was extraordinary. So Maya Angelou's book, I Know Why the Cage Bird Sings, which I hope you've read, if you haven't. It, I, it honestly is one of the best memoirs, I, I really do believe. Um, so her, she published that in America in 1969, and nobody picked it up in this country. And we picked it up in 1984. So that was wow. a long period, wasn't it? But that was when, of course, we were sort of on the hunt, in a way. And we were thinking about what books have not been brought to this country. And there was something, just to take a little tiny aside, there was something very interesting about the feminist presses and the black women writers in America coincided at the same time. So we published Maya Angelou, the women's press published Alice Walker, Sheba published Audre Lorde, and Carmen Khalil, who had by that time moved to Chateau, was uh, published Toni Morrison. Mm -hmm. just think it's quite interesting, you know, that we, we pu um, publishers in this country were alive to something that um, the mainstream publishers weren't. Um, so Maya's book was uh, published, as I said, in 69, and nobody picked it up. And she, when we did, she always said that, she told us that it had been sent to all the publishing houses in the UK, and everybody said nobody's interested in the story of a young black girl growing up in America. Um, you know, I mean, that could be true, but the book is so amazing that, you know, you could rise above that, actually. But anyway, so she came over, and we, we read the book, and we all thought, yeah, this will be amazing. And then she came over, and I, if, I don't know if you ever saw Maya Angelou, but she is, she was rather six foot, over six foot. And we were, at that point, we were in the top, in the old Hogarth Press um, bill, um, offices in, um, ch on Charing, just off Charing Cross Road, with quite low ceilings. And <laughs> so, and Maya Angelou <laughs> came in, whoa, this woman. And then she didn't just come in, she kind of, she danced in, and then she sang, and then she gave us this wonderful poem, Phenomenal Woman. For us, <laughs> and we, we just sat there and we realized, gosh, this woman's extraordinary. So we got her, we said, well, you'll come back for an author tour, please. And her friend, the great friend of hers was Decca Mitford, Jessica Mitford, you know, the Mitford, the, the left wing one, who had gone to America and wrote The American Way of Death, etc. And um, they were great, great friends, which was really, I, I, they met through the civil rights movement in America. And um, Decca wrote to me then, with this, this crazy letter, which was all, it was typewritten, obviously, it was full of X's and it was crosses out and everything. So, you know, my Angelou, my friend, I want to tell the world. So I photocopied that letter and sent it out to all the literary editors and all the um, features and everything. And obviously, Decca opened doors in this country in, in a way that um, no one else did. And then my Angelou came over, and honestly, it, it was like, so this was 1984. She, we, we hadn't, obviously hadn't had Black Lives Matter and all, all, you know, we hadn't had those kind of, especially this country hadn't kind of moved in the way that America had, and, and yet, so it needed to. And she was so 
wonderful about bringing people together, black and white, men and women, fat, short, small, whatever. You know, she was just she she just gave a great sense of the possibilities. You know, she would say things like, um, "We are more alike than unlike." You know, and she she would just I mean I just would I lo would love to have her back now because she you know we need to be reunited, mm -hmm. and when we took her around the country people would, I mean, literally cry. People wanted to touch her hem. You know, it was that, that sort of thing. And she just poured love and on, it was almost like water onto a parched land. It was extraordinary to watch. And she made you, I have to say, she was very demanding. There <laughs> is a said. point where you said. I know, <laughs> I said, there were a lot of tears and some of them, some of them were not gratitude. <laughs> you know, some of them were like, oh, I just can't keep going. She had tremendous stamina. And she said, when she got here, she'd always say to us, when I come, I bring everything. Mm. I bring my everything when I come. And, the, and, and obviously, and the look was, and you? <laughs> you know, and the, yeah, yeah, I'm bringing everything too. And you know, you just, goodbye, ho home life would just have to go, you know, on the back burner and off you went. And it was a wild roller coaster of a lot of drinking, a lot of singing and a lot of sort of preaching in a funny way. Mm -hmm. I mean, she did say she, she came from a sort of Baptist background. She did say she came, you know, she was inspired. She worked for Martin Luther King and Malcolm X, and she came, was brought up in the church herself. And so her, you know, she's, her, her feeling of, was that she was a teacher. Mm -hmm. And um, so it was, it was glorious, and she made you better. But some of it was hard. <laughs> it was, some of it was very hard. But she did make you better. She made you want to be better. That was really exciting. And there's, I know it's a tiny, tiny thing, but um, in your book there are these moments when you're talking about Maya Angelou where Jon Snow pops up. Yes, yes. <laughs> Jon <laughs> Snow, because he was good friends with um, Decca. Right. Decca right. Mitford. So, yeah, he w and he was, Decca called him Packer Snow because he always would appear and help her pack all his clerical <laughs> clothes and things like that. And then, De and the other, sorry, just, to, it was pretty wild stuff, but Decca and Maya Angelou used to sing as well. They used to sing um, Bang Bang Maxwell and um, Decca used to sing Grace Had an English Heart. Do you know Grace Darling uh, from um, Durham, near Durham? The, the young girl who rode out was supposed to the Victorian story. Grace Had an English Heart and, yeah. and um, Maya used to love the idea of an English heart. That was very <laughs> funny. But the two of them used to sing Bang Bang Maxwell <laughs> and Right Said Fred. That was the other one they loved. <laughs> I know. You couldn't do that nowadays. Um, <laughs> No, probably not. Um, but anyway, it was, it was, yeah, it was good fun. And it was, as I say, it was hard work, but it was also, I really felt, you know, back to changing the world. Yeah. You know, I thought, yeah, that's what we're doing. We're out here changing the world. And in 80, it's 84. 84. And that really was. Yeah. That, that was, and, you know, I can, when you were talking about that, I was picturing, you know, the revivalist tent, and we're yes. in the tent here, and, yes. and that, that kind it was of like energy. That. Yeah. It's amazing. Um, and you don't have to, but w were there any stories that you d chose not to put in the book? That <laughs> and you think I'm going to reveal no, them No, I know. We're being <laughs> podcasted, so you can just say yes, perhaps, or not at all. Well, I mean, I, I was definitely careful because, I, first of all, I was every, everyone who's in this book read what I said about them. So, you know, and, and I, I said... Obviously, correct me if I've got any facts wrong. I mean, my interpretation of the events is mine, mm -hmm. of course, but um, 
if I've got something wrong about you or you don't want me to say this, that's fine too. So that was particularly around my authors. Um, so what not to put in? Well, as you, as you referred at the beginning, our battles and things. I mean, like any, like any small enterprise, of course, we battled. We had fights between ourselves. Why I, why I say enterprise rather than any small feminist group. I mean, I know feminists, I know feminists fight too. Mm -hmm. But um, whenever, when we had our boardroom battles, so we were independent. Veraldus had seven incarnations. Started independent, then became part of Chateau and Windus, then got bought by Random House, then we did a management buyout. <laughs> and then, so then we were independent, then we sold ourselves to Little Brown. Little Brown then sold itself to Hachette. So we're in like our seventh incarnation now and still going. Um, but obviously, people don't agree. But the reason, and I can tell you some of that sort of stuff, but what I, why I was hesitant on t calling it enterprise rather than a feminist business is because when we fought, and naturally we felt strongly about it, um, it was always, it, was, it became characterized as cat fights mm. and uh, feminist fight, you know, and, and also end of feminism. You know, just because Viraga was struggling, obviously that meant feminism was dead too. And you know, so we always, you know, the great thing about Viraga or feminism in general is it's, it's my version of feminism is that feminism is about how we live. Mm -hmm. You know, it's, they, it's a code. That's why everybody has an opinion on it. And whether you want to be one or not or how you, how you want to live, feminism is about how we live. And it's about how we live with men and women, but also how we, how we think of ourselves, isn't it? Mm -hmm. And so, obviously, everybody has an opinion. And within that, we are trying to run a business. And, you know, we're not a library. We're not a charity. We're not a lobbying group. I mean, we lobby, but, you know, through books. So we have to keep making a profit. We have to pay people properly. Mm -hmm. And those, that kind of, that hit of sort of capitalism and ideas and feminism, it's, it is unbelievably exciting and also can be very toxic. Mm -hmm. And so some of those stories I didn't put in. And one of the, I know I had got a review in the, um, from a friend um, in the Guardian or in the Observer and she said she wasn't bitchy enough. I mean, she didn't actually say that, but that's really what's kind of what she said. She wanted to say it's, you know, what another one said it's like the devil wears Prada, but in, in books. And, but, the, you know, that I hadn't sort of dished the dirt. And, you know, I thought, that, no, my purpose of this book was not to crawl over some of those battles that we had. My purpose in this book was to show what women have achieved. Mm -hmm. And so, yes, even Margaret Atwood said to me, you haven't told the whole truth. And I said, I have. She said, well, she said, you told the Canadian version. <laughs> <laughs> Which means nice, as you know. Um, but, so I chose to do that. You know, of course I could have done more bitchy stuff, actually. But I thought... That, that's not the purpose of this. Mm. You know, Virago's been going, will be going 50 years next year. The women's movement has gone, you know, longer than that. And so what I wanted to talk about is what we managed. I mean, obviously people argue, but that, you know, I mean, that's interesting in a gossipy way, but does that move things on? I don't think it does, actually. So, yeah, I mm. didn't tell everything. No, and that's... <laughs> but and I told a lot. <laughs> you, you certainly did. But... In terms of what, what I want to um, just touch upon now, it, it, it's a perfect thing with your what you achieved and your relationship, particularly with the writer Angela Carter. Mm. Um, and that's the important stuff. I mean, mm. the, the whole set middle section of this book is, is 
authors and the book. Mm. Um, and I know we discussed this before, but I don't know if you'd be willing to talk about Andrew a little and read um, a letter that you wrote mm. to her while she was still with us. So Angela Carter was, like a lot of writers, when Viraga first started, felt very strongly about Viraga and wanted to be you know, part of the enterprise. She and Carmen became extremely good friends. And um, she, so she, one of the first things she did is sign with us for a book called The Saudian Woman. And I think Carmen paid her something like a thousand pounds. And then she didn't deliver it for years and years and years and years and years. But you know, and she brought us writers. She brought us Pat Barker, for example. She taught, she was on an Arvon Foundation writer, writing course, and she taught Pat. And, Pat, and then came back to us and said, I think this is an amazing writer, you know, that, that um, you should do. We published Union Street, which mm -hmm. we, I, I still believe, was one of the first working class women's um, stories. Very extraordinary, tough book, actually, yeah. but really good. And um, so she was always, always there to help us. And she always, you know, when I was saying at the beginning, you know, that the landscape was the Ian McEwans and Salmans and blah, blah, blah. And, Angela helped a lot of those men. She was a bit older, yeah, a tiny bit older, I think. Helped a lot of them. And then somehow they got away, and, and poor Angela never got even shortlisted. She never even, she job, didn't trouble any of the shortlist books. Mm. You know, she was ahead of her time in so many ways, actually. But yeah, she, and then she, she got ill, as you know, and she died. And um, do you want me to read this then? So, anyway, I'll read it. Sorry, can you just remind me of the page yes, again? Yes, 168. So she was a good friend to us, is what I'm trying to say. And one of the things she did at the, at, in the last bit of her life with us was, I mean, she published with other writers, not just, or other publishers, not just Virago, but she was putting together a collection for us. Of the, it was called the Virago Book of Fairy Tales. One of the, she was very, very big on fairy tales, mm -hmm. and she translated, and you know, see somebody nodding, you know that aspect of her. Um, and so she put together this book. She had the idea, do you remember the Andrew, oh God, I've lost his name actually. There was the red book of fairy tales, the blue book of fairy tales, green books. I had them as a child and she had them too and she loved those and so she wanted to do, keep on going. So she did the, the uh, blue book and then the red book and then she got sick. So we said to her, you don't have to do it. You know, we can, someone else can put this together. And she said, oh no, no, I'm just doing this for the girls. <laughs> we were the girls. Um, and then she, came near to, to death. So I wrote to her in February 1992 and I said, sorry, can I just tell you why it, this book, this letter's in here is because mm -hmm. Edmund Gordon, who wrote a biography, a really brilliant biography of Angela, um, had this in the archives. And so he said, can I use it? Can I put it in my book? And so I, I, can, I hadn't read it and then I put it in my book <laughs> since I wrote it. Um, I want to write and say thank you to you for many things, for giving me such delight as a reader, and for all the support and encouragement you've given me in Virago, for the wonderful books you've published with us. I was talking to a friend this weekend, and I mentioned your name, and she said she didn't go in much for hero worship, but you were her heroine. And I guess that's another way of saying what I feel too, except that heroes are usually distant and cool until you get too close to them, and then they have lead feet, or whatever that expression is. And that's not you. You've been such fun and such a tonic and such an interesting, good, generous human being. I feel very privileged to have had the chance to work with such a rich, rewarding writer who also understands about being a mother. 
I send you love. From all accounts, you are dealing with this horribly sad and difficult time with great spirit and dignity. You are a wonderful woman, Angela. That's beautiful. Lenny, I'm going to say thank you <laughs> myself. But there is a roving, roving, roaming mic. Is there one or two going round? There, there's one going round. So fast. <laughs> um, so if you'd like to ask a question, we have plenty of time for questions. Uh, yes, somebody over here, just on the third row. And I think pretty sure the mic is already on. Yeah. Do you want to Can you hear yeah. me? Um, I, I was just curious to you know... You have to like get closer to you. have to get closer. Is that better? Yes. yes. I stayed right. <laughs> um, so, thank you. That was really interesting. I, I was just wondering if you had any thoughts about the um, aggregation of publishing houses and, you know, the big um, court case that's going on in America right now and whether or mm. not that would influence autonomy of the, the relationship that you're talking about with authors and editors... So um, what you're talking about is, at the moment, there's um, Penguin Random House um, is trying to buy Simon & Schuster in, in America, which is obviously go international too. And already we're talking about the big four. So there's Penguin Random House, Hachette, Macmillan, and HarperCollins basically dominate the, pub the publishing scene and own most of the small publishing houses. There are independents, Bloomsbury's independent, Faber's independent, Canongate, um, but mainly, there, we are mainly imprints. Most of us are imprints within these bigger publishing houses. And so before I answer that, what I'd really like to say that has changed so dramatically since I came into publishing is book selling. You know, yes, the conglomerates have changed, definitely. But if you think, you know, when I, when, when I first came into publishing, obviously there was no Amazon and there wasn't even a Waterstones, you know, but mostly what there was was huge number of independent bookshops. W. H. Smith was about the only chain, and then there was books, etc. In, Amer in um, London, um, you know, Mengies in um, Scotland, John Smith. But even those owned maybe like four or five shops. You know, they're more like Daunt's is now in London. And what that meant was is that you could have this tremendous variety. So you could have a bestseller in Wales. You could have a bestseller in the north. You could have a bestseller in Scotland that didn't necessarily you know, um, sell a lot of copies somewhere else in the UK. And what we've now got because of Amazon and because of, I mean, I think Waterstones is a great thing. I'm not going to do down Daunt's by any means. You know, it's, all, it's now run by the man who set up Daunt's bookshop, James Daunt. And he does a great, great job. Um, but one of the reasons he does a great job is because he treats each shop as if it's an independent. So that the bookseller has, has their head about what they want to order. Um, there was one time when Waterstones, before it was owned by him, Waterstones was like, a, like any chain. Every bookseller was told what to put in the window, what book to be face out. Publishers paid to have, to, you know, to promote their books. So there was no, sorry? Okay, well now you know it's great, don't you? Well, I'm sure it's got, you know, like everything's got problems. But um, um, yeah, so that's what I would say is the biggest change. So within the publishing houses, yes, okay, does that really change? The fact is, as I said in, in that beginning thing, is publishing is about one person telling another person, you've got to read this book. And that is still the truth. So that could be one person in a publishing house of 1,700, or it could be one person in a publishing house of 25 or, you know, 
husband and wife in a bedroom. <laughs> you know, where the, where, the, where the small publishing, I mean, I don't know what else they're doing in the bedroom, but a lot of <laughs> publishing houses start in the back bedroom, uh, you know, the small independents. And so what you've got to do is you believe in a book, is you've got to convince other people um, that, you, that this is worth a bet. Um, and it's worth cash, because what you do with publishing is a gamble. And this is why, you know, unfortunately, is why it's difficult to remain independent, because mm. you are gambling. You, a publisher, an author comes along, say it's not finished. Tiffany's got, we're, I'm not publishing Tiffany, but one of my colleagues is publishing Tiffany's book. It sounds amazing. <laughs> Thank you very um, much. <laughs> so she's come along, and we've said we'd like to publish that book. So we pay her some money. Now she's now writing it. We don't, we're not making any money <laughs> while she's writing it. Um, but we've already paid her. Then she'll, she'll finally deliver, won't you? Oh, gosh, yes. <laughs> oh, yes. Yes, miss. She'll yes. deliver. And then, um, you know, we'll edit it, whatever. And one year from then, it'll be published. It's to mm -hmm. 2024. Mm -hmm. One year from then. So there's that cash that's been outlaid right from that, you know, from the beginning. So it's hard to be an independent and keep going. And that's why what happened with us with Virago, we got to a certain place where it was difficult. We just didn't have the capital to keep going. And you have to, at the beginning, Virago leaned, as I said, Angela Carter, lots of other writers came and said, you can have my books for very, for, for cheap. We were paid absolutely shite. But you, you can't live on that. You know, that can't go on. You have, to, you have to be on some kind of solid footing. So to get yourself inside some of these bigger houses is a good thing. It can be a bad thing. I'm not saying it can't be, obviously, because you give up power to a certain extent. But, you know, but as I say, it comes right back to that original thing, which is like one person says, I think this is great. And then your job is to convince other people. Um, and if the one thing I discovered when we find when we became part of, um, when did that one? Yeah, we became part of Little Brown. We finally had more money to pay authors, <coughs> you know. So we were able to compete and, and get a good list. So, you know, it's... It's the devil's work, I have to say. <laughs> of course it is. It's the balancing act is, is killing. But the good thing for us is that we were fully formed when we became part of a conglomerate. So there was no sense that, you know, they could, they knew what they were buying. Mm. And we've lived up to that, you know. And they've, they've helped us. They've enhanced that rather than pushing us back. So having that strong identity, that Virago identity. Yeah. And also, yeah. you know, as... As you will know, I mean, not if you're a small publishing house, it's difficult to get into Sea Waterstones and mm -hmm. sell your sell your books. So you need the might of these larger houses, and that's why I'm saying it's the publishing. Uh, the, uh, the thing that's most dramatic to me and changes is the book selling at landscape, and the publishing has responded to that. Mm. And we will have another question, but just to say, the bookshop is in the car park, <laughs> thinking of that last question and answer, and Lenny will be signing books, and all our authors will be signing books afterwards. More questions, please. Uh, yes, just there on the, yeah. Could you go closer to the mic, please? Hello? Yes, yes. Um, from the bottom up, a youngster nowadays uh, probably has grown up with Amazon and uh, a school library which may not exist, uh, a local library which only opens once every fourth Thursday. Um, where would you suggest they go to get that first filter on what might be a good place to find something to read? I grew up in a house of books and 
almost instinctively, I think, knew which publishers oh, would possibly suit my taste or suit the subject that I was investigating. Where would a youngster start now? I mean, that's a hell of a question, yeah. isn't it? <laughs> um, I mean, Amazon is our big biggest customer. You know, I mean, we, we make a lot of money by selling books through Amazon. Of course we do. Um, so, but they're not going to be good for what this horrible word in publishing called discoverability. Um, you know, they, you're not, you, know, you know what you want, don't you, when you go to, to Amazon. Um, or you can also, by the way, just a little small ad, Hive.co.uk is a also that's a, a really good or bookshop.org or um, wordery.org. You don't Amazon's not the only game in town um, in online. I don't know what to say to you to be honest because unless you've got someone to guide you, either a teacher or a librarian at school, um, you know your local bookshop would be the would be the best bet. And and you know even what I was just saying that bookshops. Have suffered um, with the, you know, with the monopolies that the places like Waterstones and Amazon have had. Um, there are a lot of local bookshops still, and they're opening. There's more opening. You know, we. I mean, the wonderful thing. It's a good thing about getting older, frankly. <laughs> well, not all good things, but one good thing is you see change does go in waves. <laughs> you know, you know. Even someone like Margaret Atwood said, "I've seen worse." <laughs> you know, kind of, you know, in her funny voice. Um, she was also the one, sorry, just to comment on her again. She was the one who said that she understood when we had our clashes. She said, in my experience, the smaller the cheese, the fiercer the mice, <laughs> <laughs> which I like very much. I thought that was good. Um, I think you need, you either need to be a person who just is, you know, finds out things yourself, or you need, you need help. I'm sorry, I don't think that's a very um, smart answer, frankly, but. <laughs> yes, and a question in the middle row here. Uh, back row, yes, just a gentleman down there. And then it can go to the gentleman I next to him. I was just very interested in what you said about when Virago was founded in the late 70s about the, the, the domination of publishing industry by men at that mm. point. And I wondered if there was any, any hostility from the industry as it existed to what Virago was doing. Well, this is the funny thing about publishing. Um, publishing, yeah, publishing wants to make money. <laughs> yeah. So what the feminists um, showed was that there was a market not being catered to. So then the other publishing houses said, "We'll get in on that too." <laughs> you know. So you know, it was funny actually because we, they, I, I remember trying to buy Susan Faludi's um, *The Backlash*, for example, and we lost out to. Um, Bizarrely, Carmen, who had then gone to Chatham Windows, <laughs> so we're up against our own. Anyway, that was a bit complicated. But, you know, suddenly it was seen that, especially the big American books, were, were seen as some that uh, could make money from those things. So part, that, that was changed. But the other thing that did change is that the, it gave something like Virago gave confidence to uh, other women in other publishing houses, too. And it, mm. it, it, you know, the world changes, obviously. It was beginning to change. It wasn't just Virago. I'm just, that's what I'm trying to say is we rode the crest of the women's movement. And what I've really thought a lot about is how you make change within industries. I mean, I'm just going to talk about my industry. And it seems to me 
one, the one even if you want to make change, the way that change really happens is when social movements demand it. So we had feminism, which demanded change. We wanted different books. We wanted different people in charge. We wanted magazines that you know, were pri you know, giving priority to, to women's books. Then you, if you think about LGBTQ+, you know, how that's changed publishing as well. Black Lives Matter has been dramatic in that, actually. God, hope we can hold it. Because I think that you know, one of the things about those kinds of movements that demand change is everybody gets on board. And that's what I meant about you know, whoa, feminism. That must be a good thing. We'd better do a few of those kind of books. Um, and that then, you know, subsides again, you know, the whole thing about waves, obviously they ebb and flow, don't they? But I think the only way the industry changes is when the readers and the authors and the social movement outside says, that's not okay. Because it's a, a business, it, it first thinks, wow, there's a trend, I'm going to go for that. Um, and one of the things I think is most dangerous is actually what it looks like you've had change because you get these kind of surface changes, don't you? More black people are working in publishing, more women have, have um, power, all those kinds of things. And it, but how deep is that change? You know, it, because it can just be a surface, it can be the t-shirt really, can't it? Rather than the kind of the deep, deep change. So um, that's a long answer to that question. <laughs> Thanks. Change. <laughs> Uh, hello, can you hear me? Hi. I can. Um, thanks for a fascinating talk, Lily. Um, I'm interested in, in the dynamic between editor and author. Mm -hmm. In other words, who has the final say? Um, because if you say, I want these changes, I want these modifications, and an Atwood or a Mayor Angelou says, no, I disagree, mm. do they still get published? <laughs> <laughs> I should turn to my to Susie in the audience. No, the author is, in my view, the author is the master of their book, and my job as editor is to be super reader, you know, big reflector back, pushing, hoping, saying what I think will happen. But it's their name on the book, not mine. And so if they decide, and Susie and I have had this, I've had a couple things, and she would say, no, she didn't want to do it that way, and I said, that's fine, that is correct. It is your book, it is your vision, and also, you know what, I could be wrong, because editors could be wrong. As we know, the world is littered with, you know, stories. In fact, I just, you know, Dune that's just come out, the new, um, the big, um, with Timothy Chalamet, et cetera, and I was reading about that, and the, the fellow who, um, was trying to represent Frank, is it Frank Herbert? I think. Frank Herbert. Yeah, yes, the, that's the author. Anyway, yeah. it went, was turned down by 20 publishers. And then finally some little academic press did it or some little scientific press, you know, just said, oh, well, we've got a printing press, we'll do it. And, um, you know, I think, well, you've got to listen to that as, a, as an editor. You've got to realize, you know, you're only one person. And I do think, that's the same thing if you get turned down and you're trying to send out your book and people are turning it down and stuff. Just don't give up because, you know, if, if it's got merit, it will find the right editor. You know, the editor has to sort of see that book. They have to, first it has to hit them and then they think, wow, this is really, for me, this is great, so I think it could be great for more people. But, you know, individual editors respond to different things, like individual readers respond to different things. So, no, but anyway, the ultimate thing is, is the, it's the author's book. Having said that, <laughs> <laughs> I have no, but I have published. A, I have published a couple books. I published a book. I think probably I should have said to the author, "I think you should have put this aside," and I, I wish I'd been braver on that one. And I also had another book that it was way too long, and I knew it was too long, but I couldn't convince her. 
to, to be, make it sure. Definitely not Susie, who writes beautiful, short, perfectly formed books. <laughs> um, no, this was a, another author who I don't publish anymore. Um, no, we just we didn't manage it, and the, I knew the book was too long, and that's what all the uh, reviews said too. But it's no good at that point saying mm -hmm. to the to the author, "I told you, you know, <laughs> you know." But you you have to um, you have to go with them, I believe. So yes, we've time for one more question. Yes, um, uh, just at the front here, lady in the third row. This really follows on from Jeremy. From well, actually the, your last answer, have you ever been presented with a manuscript and said yes, this is it? Oh God, uh, hopefully, hopefully a lot. <laughs> Good. Uh, any examples? Uh, uh, other than the people in this room. <laughs> <laughs> I tell you, I had a very nice thing with um, Marilyn Robinson. So I, have you read her first novel, Housekeeping? which is just brilliant. I mean, she, all her novels are brilliant. Anyway, I loved Housekeeping so much, and it was published by Faber and Faber. And I just thought, if this woman ever writes another book, I, please, God, can I be her publisher? Anyway, she, went, she spent 28 years between Housekeeping and her next novel, so obviously a lot of things happen. Same with Shirley Hazard, by the way. It's 28 years between some of her novels, too. So there's hope for those of you who are <laughs> working away. Um, so I finally, when by the time she finally wrote something, her um, original editor at Faber had left, so they didn't quite know what it was. They didn't know her backlist and stuff. So I got sent this fragment, which turned out to be Gilead. And you know what? I couldn't understand what was going on, but I really couldn't. It was too fragmentary. I had no idea, really. But my feeling was, if she can write housekeeping, this is going to be brilliant. So I took it to the editorial bean. I just took part of it because I knew if they read all of it, they'd think, what is this about? I, thought, I don't know. <laughs> but I just know it's going to be great. So I just gave them a kind of two or three paragraphs and said housekeeping was brilliant. So they said, okay. And that, that what I would consider, that was a great, you know, a great. But I believed in the writing. You know, I just thought, this woman is a fabulous writer. She's going to pull this off. And she did. She certainly did. Lenny, I cannot thank you enough. It's so generous um, sharing these stories. Um, as a reader, I keep pushing this, this wonderful book, uh, The Bookshop Through the Car Park. Uh, and also, um, Susie Boyd and Esther Freud will be talking at 4 or 4.30, which, 4, at 4 o'clock. So if you don't have tickets, do come back for that. That would be amazing. Um, but right now, if you could put your hands together and thank Lenny. Thank you. <laughs>